Dr. Esteban Marconi. What? The memories yes. of our time together. They can't last. Oh, that's right. That's why we have to come back here every Joe, week Joe. on Music Biz 101 and more and keep making new memories. That's right. And why are we playing the Beatles tonight? Because tonight we have the guest Ken Mansfield, the author of The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. Wow. And that concert took place exactly 50 years ago today. On the nose? On the nose and on wow. the roof. And on That's the roof. right. The roof of the Three Seville Row, the Apple headquarters of the Beatles right. we in London, England. Played, uh, the Drifters. Why? Up on the roof. Okay, we could have done that, although we're playing this song because Carole this was King. recorded on the roof. Yes, it was. Okay, you. Okay, Carol King. And she wrote up on the roof. Uh, and I think it rings a bell to me that it was. Oh, yeah? Okay. Goffin and King, but I'd have to okay. double check that. Okay, good. And um, let's see. So we are listening to Music Biz. I had an and um. I had a an uninspired moment, but it's back. So here we are. Brave New Radio. Music yes. Biz 101 and more. Your Wednesday night Exciting at 8 p.m. Show. The University of William Patterson. We should give uh, some congratulations to the WPU Pioneers basketball team, who, uh-huh. who was our lead-in. They had a big win over Rutgers Newark today. Uh-huh. Uh, we, and we have a great team this year. Havlicek. Bird, Jordan, <laughs> Ewing, and um, and those are just the women. That's right. So uh, we got it really going on this year. And Rutgers, Newark, so I guess we're William Patterson, Wayne, and we have multiple William Patterson's all around the state. So are we in the playoffs? I think we're looking good for the playoffs. Our record is 12-9. and nine. Oh. The Rutgers record is 12-9, and nine, but the way the announcers made it sound was like our 12-9 and nine is better than their 12-9. Yeah, and nine. right. So, uh, but the team is 12 and 9, looking good for the playoffs. We bring that up because our show may or may not have be prempted by playoffs. Right. Speaking of that, we should thank Ashley Weltner for running the board, engineering us all. Ashley Weltner. Ashley Weltner. Ashley. Ashley, you want to say hi to everybody tonight? I can actually talk tonight. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. (laughs) Hey, guys. And then we should remind everybody keep warm. Keep warm. Don't stick your tongue on anything cold outside. Music don't leave biz. Don't the dog out. Don't leave the dog out for too long. Be be with the dog and be the ball, Danny. Yes. Musicbiz101wp.com. Go there for the newsletter. Sign up for a weekly newsletter every Sunday at 6, every Wednesday at 3.30. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, at Musicbiz101wp. And then we have a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Spotify. Mm-hmm. Should we be giving some more thanks? I think we ought to. Let's give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and a flight hat management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. Okay, okay. And we should give thanks to Christine Vey. Christine they, a wealth manager and the president of They Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson University to manage their investments and plan for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have questions on anything from investments, portfolio management, or insurance, retirement planning, give Christine a call at Ashley. Please repeat after me. 732. 732-455-1510. 1510. You could also email her. Christine at for I'm managing your band, sixth edition. It is out now and you should read it. Don't buy it, but you should definitely read it. It will help educate your brain. And leave the last story for off the table. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> my 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 badness. 
William Patterson, the university, our music and entertainment industries programs, both undergrad, major, minor, and MBA, have been ranked one of the best in the United States of? America. Oy. Yes. That is right. So there we go. This is the fifth year of our show mm-hmm. here on Brave New Radio. This is the 30th year of Brave New Radio being on the FM stream, Airstream. Of having an FM license. On F- an FM license. And uh, soon they will be getting a driver's license and a fishing license in the spring. Mm-hmm. Classic Rock Night 5 on Saturday, February 12th, Groundhog Day to you and me. Wow. Starring your professor David Kirkphillip on the drums and singing lead on two songs. We will also be, be performing a couple Beatles songs for those of you who are into the Any special concert. guests? Rob Fusari, who has won Grammys. Oh, he's going to be there again. Rob is going to be there again. He is basically Great. a band he member. He loves the Big Ziti. That's why he keeps coming back. Yes, that's why we are not having Big Ziti tonight. We are having, or at this event, is sponsored by Jersey Mike's Subs. Oh. There we go. Wow. Family friendly. You want to know who our guest is next week on the radio show? Yes, we do. Andy Leff. Mm. Is that how I pronounce it? Andy Leff? I agree. All right. Andy was the manager of Hanson. Remember Hanson? Yes, and I do. Mm-hmm. They were here. Bop. They were here. <laughs> Back in their heyday. We had them, well, I think it was a little after their heyday, but we back in the 90s. But we had them. Yes. That's right. They came and gave a lecture to the music management seminar. Okay. All of them. And it was a special night for all the women in the class because they remembered just growing up with Hanson and mm-hmm. couldn't take their eyes off him. That would be a great reality show, Growing Up Hanson. Yes. Maybe we should plan that one out. When Andy's in next week, we'll, we'll ask if they can do something And he's coming like in, that. isn't he? He's gonna, we're having breaking bread with him at a diner, mm-hmm. following each other here, and then we're going to talk live on the radio. We're going to live stream it on the Instagram, at musicbiz101wp. And I hope the director of the radio show by that time as the new chairs delivered. You can tell the difference in this show tonight. We don't have the proper the proper chairs for our bottoms. Ah. And so you don't you don't feel what you should be feeling. I guess. Right now. Yes. Um I mean I'm inspired but uh if if I had the proper the proper something that special something under my gluteus posture. maximus yes for the posture yes that's that's what i prefer that's um next week and that is february 6th i believe and then the week after that february 13th we have jordan chalmers who is lifestyle and influencer marketing manager at atlantic records mm-hmm. influencer marketing is what we're going to talk about yes he's brilliant we've seen him speak haven't we yes we have and then uh, we may have three weeks of basketball unsure we know that in march 20th Glenn Barris, the COO of Concord Music, will be on. Mm. And we should also mention, final thing, before we get to our best friend ever, Ken Mansfield, February 25th on the campus of William Patterson University, we are going to have a live Music Biz 101 and More show. will be recorded live, and that will air on the airwaves of Brave New Radio not too long after that. But we're going to have special guests coming in. Yes, free and open to the public. The entire public. Ken Mansfield could even come. The guests include Sean Striegel, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who's a big VP at Live Nation New York. Mark Robinson, who is the head of of business affairs at 300 Entertainment. Todd Shefflin, who is a a big head honcho over at TikTok, which used to be Musical.ly. And Geneva Gamblin, who is a MBA grad who works at Electra International. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Those are our four on the panel. Then we're going to have others in the audience because it's also a networking opportunity. So we'll have Joelle Filippi, who's at Columbia. No, she's at Warner? No, Columbia. She's at Columbia? Yeah, Sony. She's, she's part of Sony. She's part of Sony. Uh, I don't remember who else. Uh, Joe Pomerico, who works in the studio at Atlantic Records. Then we have uh, one or two more who escape me, and that does not mean I don't love them. Wait, what about Kellen? Kellen Barnes, who works at oh, Warner hey. Music Group, who is still actually a student. So there we are. So we got a lot going on. Yes, we do. With that in mind, and by the way, if you're not listening live, you're obviously listening to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes. We want you to know that in the winter, it was cold. And if you're listening in the summer, good for you. But I think the most important thing right now is to recognize the man of the hour, in this case, 51 minutes. His name is... Is Ken Mansfield. Ken Mansfield. Woo! Ken Mansfield. Ken Mansfield. How are you? Hello. How are okay. you, sir? I'm okay. How are you? Very Great. Good. 
And 50 years ago today, you were not we on the radio. Honored. We are honored that the anniversary is right on the exact day. And uh, we are, we really are. We're thrilled that you're on the show with us. Thank you. All right, that's it. Let's go home now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we really appreciate it. So we're talking about The Roof, the Beatles' final concert. Mm -hmm. Why did you write the book, Ken? I mean, it's sort of obvious, but why don't you explain? Because uh, there are definitely going to be some listeners, and we've been talking to classes at William Patterson about this in the music business, who don't know much about this. So could you ex explain sort of the legendary status of this rooftop concert the Beatles had at 3 Seville Road in London, England on January 30th, 1969? Well, it is one of the most um, historic moments in rock and roll. Many people recognize that. And I was one of the few people that were up there with the Beatles. And uh, so I've been asked for a long time to write a book about this, but I didn't really, I just didn't want to for some reason. I'm an author. It's my seventh book. And uh, I'd written about the Beatles before. And so I had an author friend say, well, you know, Ken, I think you should try this. I think it's important. And so he said, why don't you just sit down and write a couple of chapters and see how you feel about it? So I did. And as soon as I started writing the book, one of those cases where the book started writing itself, mm -hmm. and I realized that, uh, you know, there was a reason for this book. And there's so many books about the Beatles, but everything else, well, that's not totally true, but so many just seemed like they're all facts and, and figures and all the phenomenal and all that kind of thing. But I, I was there. I worked with them for uh, years before. And I really felt that maybe people, what they maybe would really like to hear was, what was it like? Nobody's taken this <clears throat> kind of really personal feel towards it. I'm not into the facts. I'm not into the, the data and the details and who played the fifth song on the fourth record uh, on the fifth take. Mm -hmm. after the sixth day with the cowbell. You know, I, I don't know. In fact, I can't remember what songs or what albums sometimes. But I, I worked with them in 65 uh, on tour in the West Coast, again in 66. And then they invited me to come to run their company and set it up, you know. And um, I, I'm, I got to know them as, as people. And more than that, when I went to Apple, I got to know Apple as a real just, I almost want to say just a very uh, thriving and exciting uh, atmosphere. And I wanted the people to know what it felt like to walk down this famous street in London, which was Savo Row, one of the most uh, upscale streets in the whole city, and to walk in that building, which was one of the most historic buildings on Savo Row, and in the Mayfair district, what that was like, one of the most wealthy areas. And here's this rock and roll band that has set up a business. <clears throat> and you walk through that door, and it was like walking into a movie set with 50 movies going on at one time. <laughs> it was just absolute chaos in there. Yeah, I mean, because the Beatles had their offices in there. Uh, there was all kinds of activities going on. There's a studio downstairs, and uh, there was recording and songwriting and and the publishing, and, and there'd be the Hells Angels in the building sometimes, or the Hare Krishnas, or a famous actor, or a famous athlete, or uh, Derek Taylor sitting in his big wicker chair, who was the head of PR, and he would be holding court with who knows who, with Cristal Champagne and the Cordon, Cordon Bleu chef, for do you want something to eat? And have this great chef come out and prepare you a meal. And uh, it was just, I want people to open, walk in that door with me, and go up the stairs and go in the offices and eventually come up to me with me up on the roof to see that most historical moment in rock and roll with the greatest band of all time. I was there. There was only about 12 of us in what I call the sweet spot on the roof that day. It was a very small roof. And uh, uh, there was four of us who were actually the audience that day. Uh, there was... Uh, the four Beatles and Billy Preston, they were the musicians. They were doing this show. There was, a, you know, a couple of sound men and a couple of uh, film people and the director of the film. And then myself and Yoko Ono and Maureen, who was uh, Ringo's wife, and Chris O'Dell, who was uh, assistant to Peter Asher at the time. 
And we were the audience. We were the only people invited up there besides you know, people that had to be there. We were the only people that weren't working that day. We were the audience. Mm-hmm. To sit there and see this historic moment come down four to six feet away. All right. Now, <clears throat> you mentioned in the book, this, I'm Steve Marconi here. Uh, yes, Steve. Colleague with Dave. Uh, you mentioned in the book that that Apple Corp was way ahead of its time. That the concept of of um, of Apple. Could you explain that to, a little bit? Well, yes. You know what the Beatles wanted to do is they wanted to put all their asset creation in one place, and uh, so they set up a very sophisticated corporation to where that instead of, I guess, in the business world, instead of farming stuff out, uh, they decided they would do everything themselves and bring everything you know into the into the company. It'd be almost like in a way like McDonald's saying, why are we spending all this money buying potatoes? Why don't we have our own potato farm and then we'll have, you know, our own French fries and we'll make the profit uh, that they're making off of it. So the Beatles wanted to bring their publishing and their film, uh, you know, and their recording and and uh, all these things into one place. And there's a lot of corporations today that have followed that model. And here was, you know, these four rock and roll guys setting up something that major corporations have followed since. Did they um, uh, certain responsibilities or were in charge of certain areas or it was just whatever came in and whoever brought it in and et cetera, et cetera? Are you talking about the uh, the Beatles? Yes, the uh, four Beatles. Yeah. Uh, they, <laughs> that would be hard to organize their thoughts or what they did because they would come in and they, you, you just never knew what somebody was going to come up with, you know. Mm-hmm. And think about this, working for a corporation that uh, had uh, four equal presidents. So what if one of the presidents mm-hmm. tells you one thing and another one tells you another? And, and uh, you know, sometimes a lot of us were just looking at each other, not knowing which way to go sometimes, because there's no way you could say no to any one of them or not, you know, try to accomplish what they had you know, in their minds. So mm-hmm. it, it was, uh, I would say it was so chaotic that the chaos actually was a part of the creativity that really mm-hmm. helped make things happen there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you know it's, what's interesting is the, in, in your book, you celebrate a lot of what was going on during that time with the Beatles and the I want to right now call it the myth of the Beatles, especially during the Let It Be album, was that all they did was fight. They hated Twickenham Studios. George was just in a bad mood the whole time. Um, but you made it sound like it it wasn't as bad as everybody thought. And I bring that up because then you can you can uh, reflect on this. There was the announcement this morning that Peter Jackson, who directed yeah. all those Lord of the Rings films, is going to put out a documentary. Mm-hmm. He found I guess they found 50 hours of unreleased footage from Let It Be. And um, he's going to put that out, I guess, the next couple of years with a whole lot of um, sort of redoing with some new technology, but basically a documentary about the making of Let It Be. Um, and Peter, in the article that I read today in Billboard, said the same thing, that there is this myth that um, all they did was fight. And, um, in fact, he said when you watch the footage, you see a lot more, what you just said, a lot more of the creativity. Yes, and I've been waiting for this film to uh, be done. I just know, was praying that someday... Somebody would come in and show the other side of what on what went on there because the Let It Be film was a little dark and it showed a lot of that negativity and of course people like to pick up on that and report that part but um, some people accuse me of, of being too fluffy about things but I never saw any of that that darkness I mean I really was around them when things were happening I sat in the studio during the Let It Be uh, Billy Preston. Uh, and I had a long relationship. He and I came to Capitol Records at the same time, and I came as an executive, and he came as a new artist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we were making our bones together, and then the next thing we know, which was years later, we're sitting in the studio with the most famous band in the world, and Billy and I would go like, you know, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. well, it, just, it was crazy, and, and uh, I would sit there and watch him work. <clears throat> now, George had brought Billy in, because there was a lot of tension, a lot of dissension. And uh, Billy was a calming effect for the band. They respected him. Uh, they really loved Billy. And Billy 
and the band just hit it off. And Billy and George were very close friends. And with Billy there, uh, they were doing that thing that probably your parents told you is, okay, you know, don't air your dirty laundry in front of strangers. And so when uh, with Billy in there and then with me in there, the guy that's running their company in America, they were going to, I just don't think they were going to stand there and argue and fight. I think they were encouraged just to go ahead and, and work, you know, and, and get their work done. So I saw nothing but positive things the whole time. Uh, I was alone with them at times and none of them ever said, uh, you know, negative things about each other or about what was going on. Uh, there was an incident in Los, uh, Hollywood with George once where we were alone, and he, he was a little upset about a couple of things. But um, the film, I hope, is going to – and this is what Paul McCartney said he's wanted. He's always wanted uh, the, the film to be redone or re-edited so it showed more of the positive things. And uh, I'm really hoping that that's what um, – Mr. Jackson does with this with this film is just really shows the lighter side of things, or maybe shows a more expansive, more balanced, you know, approach to the film, so it isn't so one-sided. Right now, you you don't talk too much about uh, Phil Spector's role in either <laughs> remixing or you know whatever he actually did with yeah. Let It Be. Well, George Martin said uh, I produced the album. And Phil Spector overproduced it. <laughs> yes, and, uh, when you you know, Phil, <laughs> John brought you know Phil in, and uh, when they, uh, I mean, what I heard on that album, the original album, is not what I saw in the studio. And then when they released uh, "Let It Be Naked," I almost had tears because all of a sudden I was taken back to those moments because that's really what Paul intended for the album to be in the first mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And he's he I I think he hated the Spectre album, and was really behind finally getting Let It Be Naked come out because that was their intention with the album. They wanted to have the people see them in a more raw form, and because you know they've been coming off all these heavily produced records in the past, and they really want people to see that side of them. And I would be sitting in the studio, and they would be uh, they had the tape running all the time. So they might even be kind of writing a song and rehearsing a song, coming down with ideas, rejecting things. And they would take a song to the point to where all of a sudden uh, Paul would turn to the, the booth and say, hey, let's hear that back, you know. And then eventually one of those things would be the one that they would want to go with. So it had a very live, very raw, very real feel to it. Mm -hmm. Although in <laughs> um, one of the earliest books on the Beatles, uh, Wilfred Miller's book, uh, he quotes John saying that, uh, uh, you know, using four-letter words and so on, but that he gave, they gave Phil Spector this pile of you-know-what, and when I finally listened to it, John says, it, as Miller's quotes, uh, that it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. <laughs> okay, I haven't heard that. Yeah. That's good, that's good. I do know Paul didn't like it. Like, and you would, no. you would mention that, Ken, because there is, a, uh, again, another book called You Never Give Me Your Money. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Alan Klein was in the picture at that point, too, with the Phil Spector stuff uh, by then. And um, Paul wrote a letter stating he didn't like it, he didn't want it out. And um, I think it also was coming out right at the same time that Paul had a record coming out. And there were they were all starting to put out solo records, and there were different issues with... Uh, release dates and all this, and that's when I think things started to get a little out of bounds as well. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wanted Paul, I think, to come out with his record at the same time as as the group record. Mm -hmm. I think right. that was a big, uh, big issue with the band. <clears throat> so, when did you um, actually? When did you stop working for Apple? Where Where are we in the timeline? Well, at the end of '69, uh, Ron Cass, you know, Alan Klein forced. Ron Cass out of the presidency, mm -hmm. and uh, Cass went to MGM as uh, MGM Records as president there, and then Cass asked me to join him to head up the uh, marketing, merchandising, and promotion, and then Peter Asher, who was uh, Peter and Gordon and the head of A&R of Apple, Peter came with us, and then there was also a fellow named Mike Connor, who was publishing, and he came with us, so mm -hmm. basically a bunch of us left together and we just, uh, MGM was having a lot of problems. They were they had like five presidents in one year or something. Mm -hmm. 
And what they did is they hired away kind of the top of Apple and plugged us on top of MGM thinking, you know, the Beatle guys would give them a much better image. So it wasn't like I just vacated Apple on my own. I really, you know, a bunch of us went together. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ron Cass, uh, Peter Asher and I were longtime friends. And Ron Cass is probably the most uh, influential executive in my life I'd ever known. So I had such great respect for him that I wanted to continue to work under his leadership. Mm-hmm. So, so did Klein fire you as well, or he fired Cass mm-hmm. and Cass said, you come with me? Well, uh, now here's where uh, semantics works really good. He <laughs> didn't fire Cass. I, he forced him out. Mm-hmm. And now, as far as me leaving, I had already accepted Cass's offer to come to MGM. Now, Alan Klein, uh, actually, the, Paul McCartney and Ron Cass are the people that was re- mainly responsible for bringing me into Apple. And Klein had this misguided conception or impression that because of that, that I had a great amount of influence on Paul. Of course, Paul was the guy that they could get on the, you know, to join the other guys. He was a separate guy out. And I think Kine had the feeling that maybe if I was still there, that I could influence Paul and maybe help Klein, you know, get all four of them together or something like that, which was totally a mistake. I had no influence on Paul. Uh, He and I never discussed matters like that. And even if I told him I thought he should stay, he wouldn't have listened to me. It wasn't my decision. So uh, when Klein found out that I accepted Cass's uh, uh, offer, he called me and he flew out from London to L.A. And he said, uh, I need to talk to you. And so I met him at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I remember we went out and we sat by the pool. And he said, okay. He said, I hear you've uh, accepted an offer from Cass, but uh, if you and I have a successful conversation right now, uh, in a few minutes from now, you will make three times as much as you were making a few minutes ago. And, I, I, and he said, I don't even know what you're making now. But if you, you, know, if you stay, you're making three times as much plus. I will give you responsibilities with the Rolling Stones and with Donovan. Ah. Now. <laughs> that's an offer. I'm drooling. <laughs> yeah, that's an offer. Yeah. Now, I had a family, you know, and I had to think about uh, you know, my life and my career and all that. And uh, so it was pretty tempting, but my loyalty with Cass was so deep. And uh, I knew in my heart that, you know, the end was drawing near with the Beatles. And the MGM thing was a really great challenge. And it was a kind of a prestige thing to be a vice president of MGM. And uh, anyway, I was still, I was still troubled by, it, by the offer because it was such a great offer. And uh, so I went over to Ron Cass's house in Beverly Hills that night, and I said, uh, I'm not going to give you the exact details like you left out the four-letter words that uh, <laughs> Don had said. And uh, that wasn't Cass's way of language, but he was pretty, pretty – uh, clear with me about what he felt about Klein and the whole thing. Mm. And uh, so I told him, <clears throat> you know, everything, what the offer was and, you know, how I had my career and my family and all that kind of stuff. And Ron listened very patiently. And then finally he said, Ken, um, I've got to, I've got to honor your, your need to, you know, for yourself and your family. But uh, now I'm going to change the wording of the things. But what he said to me basically was, did I want to be associated with Alan Klein for the rest of my life? Did I want to be known as Klein's guy? Because mm-hmm. of Klein did not have a great reputation at that time. And that was such solid information where he didn't try to talk me out of it. He just gave me something to take home and to think about, you know, to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that kind of a, uh, input, I, I said, no. Now, if you knew Klein, he was the most persuasive guy in the mm-hmm. world you're sitting there and you're talking to somebody you think is really not a very good person yet there's the way they're talking to you you want to believe them you know mm-hmm. you want to accept what they have so i did the craziest thing in, in the world because it was hard for me to go back and turn down klein and i wrote about this in another book so i saw that he had brought a tennis racket with him uh, on a trip. Now, Alan Klein would look like an egg on two sticks. I mean, yeah. he, was, uh, he, he was an accountant. Yeah, he looked like he'd never been outside of a room or even in a room with windows on it. Right. And so 
<laughs> I, I said, I tell you what, Alan, uh, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll play you a set of tennis. And if you can beat me, and by the way, at that time, I was playing in like local country club tournaments and stuff. I was you know, a young guy, and I was playing pretty good. And I said, if you can beat me in tennis, I'll come with you. And if not, then you know, this is over. So we go out in the tennis court, and when I saw him in his shorts and stuff, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to take about 10 minutes, man. <laughs> I, could, I could not get the ball past this guy. Really? I mean, it wasn't a tennis game. It was a negotiation, and Alan Klein was the greatest negotiator you know, yeah. around. And so I was totally out of my league with going out. He, uh, there was just something. Uh, I was, anyway, do you, do you know, do you play tennis? You know how you score tennis? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if you win six games before the other guy does, you you win. Right. But, but you have to beat him by two games. So right. you have to beat him by six to four or seven to five or something like that. I finally beat him 15 to 13. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing was, is we shook hands, you know, over the net, and he walked away, and I never heard from him again. In other words, <laughs> negotiations over. That was a deal. It was done. Okay, fine. I never heard from him again. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> wow, but, interesting. Uh, and that was the stupidest, stupidest thing I ever done. I, I'm out there sweating. <laughs> I thought, what in the world have I done? I'm doing this. Right. So stupid. Why well, didn't have the guts to tell him? No, I, you know, I definitely don't want to do it. But anyway. Well, right. the story is better if you play him at tennis rather than yeah, <laughs> say right. no. So. Yeah. And we're yeah. <laughs> We're uh, we even have some interns that are still at Abco here in New York, but uh, you know we're very familiar with uh, Fred. Fred Goodman, Goodman wrote Fred, a book about Alan yeah. Klein a couple of years ago. I don't know if you had read that, but it, it really painted I that picture of him. Okay, I never read any of the Beatle books. I uh, read uh, I met maybe I read one or two over the years, but it's just something I just never did because mm -hmm. I knew what I knew, and, and right. I don't know. I read the first book by one of the people I won't mention, and I thought it was so off base. I thought I didn't want to hear about it from then mm -hmm. on, you know. Well, but um, the, while all this was going on, and you you mentioned this very briefly in the book, but you're you're a kid from Idaho or the Midwest or yeah. whatever, and, and Idaho. certainly not uh, the New York or L.A. slick, uh, you know, yeah. type of coming up and so on. Did you did you sort of pinch yourself a million times when this was going on and saying, how the hell did I get here? You know, I can't tell you how many times I would stop myself and say just exactly that, you know. How did a kid from uh, northern Idaho that grew up next to an Indian reservation get on the roof at Apple? Or how did I end up in uh, a hotel suite with the Beatles? Or how did I end up, you know, with, with all these things? I think, I don't understand this. I just And if I try to think back, I cannot recreate in my mind the path in a way and how that could possibly happen. Mm. Part of it is just, uh, well, you've, or I think you've already said it, being in the right place at the right time. And a big part of it, and I think this is a, one of the big parts of anybody's success, is naivete. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know that I could be with the Beatles. I didn't, you know, I didn't understand that that's kind of impossible. I just met them and I, I dug them and, we worked together good, and it just all happened. You know, I think if I'd have really known uh, how big they were and how famous they were and how big everything mm -hmm. was going to be, that I would have been so intimidated that I would have never even dreamed that it was possible. Right. And I didn't even have to try to make it possible. It just happened. Right. I think they, I think they were comfortable with me because I wasn't in awe of them. I mean, I thought they were a great band. I didn't get, get, get what the big deal was. And what's, so, what's so big about this band? I've worked with a lot of bands before. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, they're famous, but I just wasn't intimidated. And I think they sensed that, that I wasn't in awe of them. I wasn't asking, I wasn't asking hey, well, can we take a picture together? Or, hey, will you sign this? Or, hey, I want you to, you know, I just, I just worked with them, never, never said anything like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think um, that's part of why it happened. Well, I didn't know any better. I should have probably been doing that, you know, and I could have sold them later. I don't know. <laughs> For those listening, we're, we're um, talking to Ken Mansfield, the author of The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. We want to also thank Chris Roslin, yes. who is a grad of William Patterson, the university, who... Uh, hooked us up with you, Ken. So thank you again for appearing on Music Biz 101 and more. 
And Ken is the man in the white coat on the roof. Famous picture from uh, on the roof. Now, since uh, Dave gave us a segue back to the concert, you mentioned uh, the various places that that this concert might have taken place, and. I, I was actually on Epic Records in the early 70s and so on, and I always thought, until I read your book, that it was just a day they decided to go on the roof and play. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was all this pre-planning and decisions and, and part of Let It Be and so on and so forth. But uh, it's sort of around the world, wasn't it, the uh, possibilities of where this might take place? Yeah, yeah. Um... In fact, that was, in a way, just another day at the office. But this around-the-world thing, uh, I had gotten a call from uh, Mal Evans, and he said, uh, the Beatles want you to, score, to scope out a desert in America. And <laughs> Mal said that he was supposed to scope out the Sahara Desert. And uh, wow. uh, their idea was to set up in a desert someplace and invite every kid in America in a world, I mean, to come and see them for free. And, uh, well, that's a pretty grandiose, you know, yeah. the idea of it. But, you know, how would you like to try and underwrite, get the underwriting for insurance <laughs> on that kind of thing? But, but worse yet, which one of you want to try to get the uh, porta-potties? I mean, the number sure. of porta-potties for, <laughs> you know, and probably half the kids wouldn't have returned alive. The whole idea course, was crazy. Yeah. But that was just one of like many crazy ideas, they had. Uh, I found out later that they had talked about uh, an island off of Tunisia, yeah. um, the London Palladium, the Colosseum. Uh, how about this, the House of Parliament in, in London? You know, uh, going back to the Cavern Club, uh, going to uh, the Virgin Islands, uh, going to Ethiopia. Yeah, uh, you know, they had all these ideas for different reasons for each place why they, you know, why they wanted to do it, and um, in time, all the ideas were just not doable. What's and it? So, uh, uh, one, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg needed footage, and they were running out of time, and so it was his idea for the guys to go up on the roof. Nobody wanted to travel. Nobody wanted to haul a crew around. Nobody wanted to. Stay in hotels together, and nobody wanted to, you know, have all this expense and all this uh, big setups and all that kind of thing. Uh, and that was kind of something that I think they all kind of liked. Well, we'll just go out of the office and go upstairs, you know, or come out of the studio and go upstairs. And so um, that's how that came about. But um, I had known about, of course, because they called me a long time ago to go check out a desert. So I'd known about the concept that they needed live footage. It was to be part of the film. It was to be the mm-hmm. kind of... Uh, I talked to Michael Lindsay Hogg yesterday, and he said the idea was he had a film, but he didn't have, a like, a closer, you know. So they needed that. That was perfect. They hadn't played live for two years, and it would be the perfect ending. So, uh, anyway, uh, I gosh, I forgot where I was no, uh, we, on this. We were saying that it, that it did finally wind up on the roof. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, once that was... So, yeah, so I knew a long time ago that they were looking for to do a concert. And uh, now I'm in London. I just happened to be in London that week. I had no reason to do with the roof or anything or the film or nothing. I was there for other reasons. And so I just happened to be there. And so I'm sitting in uh, an office that I was borrowing, and Mal comes in and says, uh, hey, we're going on the roof in 15 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. If they they want to include me in this decision when I'm in Hollywood, why if I'm just here, you know, on the same floor with them, why aren't they maybe talking to me about it now? And all of a sudden I got 15 minutes. I had no idea. Now, I'd heard some construction going on about two days earlier. It started because they were, they were reinforcing the roof. The roof couldn't have held mm-hmm. anybody up there already. It was just not that way. And in, in addition to... Big, these big planks on the roof and enforcing it, Peter Asher's office was on the floor below, directly directly below uh, the, the where they were going to be, and they actually put timbers and beams up in the floor and stuff and reinforced the ceiling over his office so everything had come 
tumbling down through there. Yeah. So now I am, you've heard of Johnny Cash, the man in black. Yes, <laughs> I am the man in the white coat. I'm known for that. Right. And so I think it's freezing cold out there. I come from California. I don't bother to dress warm or anything like that. I get into a limo. I, you know, they pull mm-hmm. up where I'm going. 20 seconds, I'm outside. I'm inside. You know, so I never worried about it. So I ran out the door in the very first you know, tailor shop, men's store I, could, I came to. I just bought the first coat that was there and ran back in <laughs> and went up on the roof. And the coat was white. So when I get on the roof, everybody's basically dressed in black, you know, or dark colors except yeah. uh, George's green pants and Ringo's red jacket. Uh, there was no other colors up there. And, well, Paul had kind of a dark blue suit. but So um, I just stood out when I got up there. So that turned out to be a real another stroke of luck, you know, on my part. So you can see me in the film and in the pictures and stuff. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is all the different places that you guys talked about potentially having this final concert. And this was January 69. And what happened in, I think it was August of 69, was Woodstock. And if you had done something, let's say, in the Grand Canyon, you would have done Woodstock before Woodstock happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting how... Yeah, uh, except there had only been one band, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but, because I, I was at the Monterey Pump Festival, and, and uh, ah. I mean, that was the kind of thing. I had fifth row center seats, and I'd never heard of some of these bands. And they just came running out there, the Who, and they start smashing their instruments, and then... Right. Janis Joplin comes out and just nails everyone of us to the wall. Right. And then uh, Jimi Hendrix comes out and never heard anything like that or seen anything like that. And he burns his guitar up. And then Otis Redding comes out and he's mm-hmm. just, you know, my gosh, you know, those, those poor white boys never seen anything like that before. Gosh, <laughs> that guy was phenomenal. It was just band after band just coming out, blowing us away. So, uh, yeah, well, then, um, anyway, no, <laughs> the deals would have been big but it would only been one band maybe i don't know okay yeah i was just reading uh i've been reading a biography about bill graham after i finished your book of course and uh bill was talking about monterey and he mentioned how otis redding just owned that place like that he just was was so incredible and just everybody's their jaw was dropping as otis was there it it was stunning i mean the man he he looked giant for some reason he just was he he was so powerful and what he did it just I don't know. And, of course, like I said, I've never seen anything like that before. And to think about this, to stand out like that, what Bill Graham was saying, against people like The Who and Joplin and, and Hendrix and stuff, to have a person be that noticeable above everything else that was there, you know, it was amazing. If, if we could, could we take well, a, a couple of years, step back a couple of years to the summer of 67? <clears throat> That's when Brian Epstein died. And you were involved with the Beatles. Apple was just sort of starting, but he was still with NEMS. And they, uh, you know, not too long, I think it was uh, four or six weeks after he died, they decided to manage themselves. And that's sort of where you came in. Um, Did you know Brian Epstein very well? And did you, in your head, think that they were sometimes rudderless without him at the helm during that time? I only worked with Brian once, and the Beatles uh, had an incredible respect for Brian. And, you know, Brian was pretty much everything to them. And when Brian died, uh, one of the things, this is just a small part of the Apple thing, is, and this is what I think Paul told me, is that they couldn't replace Brian. Brian was their manager. And so it was like being almost sacrilege. You have another manager because mm. they had a man. They'd had a manager, so when by setting up Apple and bringing Ron Cass as president of Apple, he was doing the things that you know Brian used to do. But he was running the company. He wasn't their personal manager, mm. and that was a, a small part of it. Of course, the big part of it was the finances and the taxes and all the other things and just what they wanted to do because. Uh, in, in a meeting once, uh, I was told, they said, uh, we are, one of the reasons for setting up the company is as a band, they couldn't be more number one. They couldn't be more famous. They couldn't, they had no more hills to climb, you know, uh, nothing. There was just nothing left for them to accomplish that they hadn't already done. So setting up the company was a new adventure. And there, here's these young guys that came off, you know, the poor parts of Liverpool, and now they're, they have a major corporation. 
And to show you how serious they were is that they bought a building on Savile Row, mm-hmm. which, you know, one of the most upscale streets in London, in the Mayfair district, which was the most posh district in London. And they bought one of the most historic buildings on Savile Row. So they were serious. They weren't going to just, you know, like a lot of <laughs> bands and people do this time, the best they get a... They get a warehouse, and you know, off the side of town someplace, and set up this cool corporation. They set up a real business in a real part of town with the real people, you know, real business people. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they were serious. They were very serious about what they were doing, and we would hold meetings. Now here I am with a rock and roll band, and they showed up on time. They were ready. They mm-hmm. had very, uh, very inquisitive questions. They uh, they listened very carefully. They wanted to learn, and there was a real exchange. And uh, I was almost like you know at Capitol. I just left the boardroom in Capitol and gone to the boardroom at Apple. Uh, it was uh, they were so intent on doing this right and uh, in organizing the uh, first four releases. There was a lot of time we spent on what was the you know best way to market this, what was the best way to launch it best way to promote it, the images we wanted to do. And we had to, uh, one of the reasons that they sent for me at that time, probably maybe still, 50% of the world's records were sold in America. Mm. So they had to establish, they had to, they had to make uh, their impression in America first. That's where they had to launch the thing. So that's what our efforts were. You know, it's not that they ignored other places. They didn't spend attention on England and all that, but America's where they really need to, uh, you know, establish the label so they're very intent on that now you talk a lot about well we let's put it this way we've heard a lot about them hemorrhaging money when this was uh, formed <laughs> because they were okay was there, that's <laughs> true was there anybody <laughs> keeping track i mean were the accountants bugging them weekly or whatever and saying you know this is this can't go on and so on or did they just let it go for a while because they were the Beatles. Well, I just, uh, while you're asking that question, I think I, for the first time in my life, thought of the real answer to that because <laughs> I've been asked that and I've been puzzled by that. Why? How could it go on so long? But the reason they were hemorrhaging money is because John Lennon was spending so much money and George Harrison was spending so much money and they were, uh, Paul was spending so much money, you know, and Ringo was, and they were all spending so much money, so mm. they, uh, they were all doing it. It wasn't like uh, they had a an officer in the company or an employee was spending a lot of money. They were spending the money. Right. And, uh, so uh, they reason I think they brought in cash was to try and, uh, you know, to put a cap on this and organize things. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe that was Cass's failure. I don't know. I thought Cass was a consummate executive. I saw him make deals that uh, redo deals that Brian had done and stuff like that. I mean, Cass was sharp. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, I don't know. I was so sad when that cast left and everything started just changing. All right. Now, well, the uh, the um, the employees must have thought it was bottomless, too, because you you talk about the, <laughs> the uh, clothing store and, and so on. I'm sure yeah. Pilferage was, was just wild and, and so on because everybody thought, well, they were the Beatles and... And there really you, wasn't that much that, money. Yeah, you know, did you read that chapter in the book about uh, they were f- very successful with the crowds and all that? The only problem is the cash register never rang. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. <laughs> everybody was coming in, everybody was going out, but nobody was leaving any money behind. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that retail store was open even a year. I don't think it lasted nah, a year. It was, yeah. and um, it was you know a pretty cool place. So they it was, but it just another bad idea. Uh, Apple was a good idea, but it had uh, it had good intentions. But it, just the way uh, it worked out, it just was not going to work. You can't have uh, the most famous band in the world saying, "Okay, everybody, bring your records in, bring music in. We'll give you a home. You know, you're, we'll mm-hmm. make you feel happy here, and we'll take care of you, and all this kind of stuff." You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I have to ask you. Um, I'm glad I just remembered about um, Magic Alex. This uh, uh-huh. Greek friend of John's, mm. Alex, I think his last name was Mardis. Uh, Marta, yeah, Mardis. 
um, yes. Um, can you explain who he was and, and why John was so smitten with him and would let him do what he did? Because he was mesmerizing. We would go to lunch, uh, and he would sit there on a white tablecloth and be, while we're talking, he's writing all these formulas and these diagrams and all this, and he had all these things he was going to do. He was going to invent all these things, and it was just fascinating. Mm. And he came off like he was a genius, and everybody bought it. And Alex yeah. Madras became like this this person you just, oh, you couldn't believe how smart he was and all the things he was going to do. And you know, here would be Apple coming out with all these great inventions. And, oh, it would just be so cutting edge. It was just, you know. But yeah. I, I, he was a, he was a I, the low word would be scam artist. And I don't know what the high word would be. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he he. It was all talk and no no delivery on his part. And and from different things I've read, that John was just always looking for that. I don't want to say father figure, but because his his father, you know, did leave him when he was very young, and I don't think he knew him until he came back asking for money sometime in the '60s. And then his mother Julia uh, left him, came back, was killed very young, and he had his aunt Mimi. But he was always looking for that person. To, to fill the void, and I guess uh, maybe Alex filled that for a while, Yoko filled that, Klein filled that for a while, drugs filled that, so maybe yeah. that's why. I don't know. That's all possible, yes. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And, and one of the things that um, he said he was going to do was uh, create a 72-track studio in the basement yeah. where they were going right. to uh, do yeah. Let It Be, and you write about how that, did, that never happened. Yeah, he was going to make wallpaper that was speakers. So the whole wallpaper would be would be the speaker. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, it was some crazy things. Wow! Right, and and so when they filmed um, the concert on the roof, it was being recorded in the basement, but not on his seventy-two track uh, studio no. output that he said they, he was doing. They brought in equipment from EMI, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they brought in mobile equipment as part of it. Interesting. Right. Um, and then there are a lot of uh, famous people who were involved in Apple and involved in that day, including Alan Parsons was one of the assistant engineers who yeah. you were both in the same building and you didn't even know each other until you met. I guess during the writing of this book, is that when you met him? No, I met him uh, maybe 20 years later. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I was basically a suit up there in his eyes, and he was a 19-year-old kid making his bones. He was pulling cable and running up down the stairs and getting, you know, getting the sound together and having to go down and buy pantyhose to cover up the, yeah. the microphones because of the wind and all that. So uh, we never even, I don't know, we might have said hello passing, but, but we didn't even meet each other at all. And then I was his guest at a concert about 20 years later because his bass player had read one of my books and invited me and he, and he knew I was an Alan Parsons fan. And so Alan and I are backstage talking and all of a sudden something was said. We went, wait a minute, what? You're on the roof? No way. Were you on the roof? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, and then we, now we're, we're bonded forever, you know, because it's like two guys coming out of a foxhole and living and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, this camaraderie just because of that single event. That, that's interesting. All and, right. uh, Somebody here who works here at William Patterson, the university, his father is the drummer, has always been the drummer for Alan Parsons. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he's a guy who works, uh -huh. a staff member here, but his father lives uh -huh. in England, I think, and has worked uh, with him for a long time. Wow. There's your coincidence right there. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, one final question that I have, it's about the house hippie, Richard DeLillo. And I don't think a lot uh -huh. of people know that one of the people under the employment of Apple at this time was they had a guy who was an American who was the hippie. Yes. Uh, can you explain yeah, what that was? <laughs> it was a house hippie. You, know, you <laughs> can't write up a description for a hippie. You know? <laughs> and uh, he was uh, he was a house hippie. I never even know if he had anything that was uh, uh, part of his uh, job description. But he was there to just to be happy, I guess, keep people happy and just do whatever's needed. You know, I never really knew him. Uh, I mean, I was around, but I never really knew Richard. But I just knew he was a house hippie. I never even questioned it. That was what it was. <laughs> it's fun. And he wrote hey, a book. I, I, huh? Yeah, he's he's he written a book, too, about it. A long time ago. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, 
I, I know we're running out of time. I, I would, would like to say one thing um, about about the book is I just wanted people to again go in the building and feel like they've been there and to meet the people and and uh, just you know a different type of thing. So they, could, I've had more people they've written me said, oh, "Gee, I just felt like I was there. I could almost smell the building, you know, and that kind of thing." So yeah. I think that's the people I want. That's the thing I want for people who know so much about like you guys know so much about the Beatles but uh, I want you to know too what it felt like not only what it was but what it felt like to be there mm. I think uh, mission accomplished yeah definitely okay yeah <laughs> really seriously I thought they, uh, you did a really good job and it, the detail was incredible well that, I had a lot of great people helping me uh, I, I wasn't going to tell this story the emotional story without making sure my facts were straight along the way. And I'm not a fact person. So I have some of the greatest people, you know, that, that know about the Beatles, like five people check my facts and fill me in on some things. So mm -hmm. that's great. That helped, mm -hmm. that helped bring it together. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I have something, uh, you, I'm going to email you, uh, we get off the air and so on, because I have something you may not be aware of. Uh, it was a, um, it was a, something that had to do with John Lennon, so I will do that in the next couple of days. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, so well, we've thanks been, for having me. Thank you very much for appearing on Music Beats 101 and More. Again, we're talking to Ken Mansfield, The Roof, The Beatles' final concert. Out and now. It's been out since November. Yeah, out since November. Very good book. It's, if you're a fan of The Beatles, if you're a fan of well-written, well-researched books, this is one that you should read. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ken, very much. You bet. Take care. Ken Mansfield. Yes. Ken Mansfield. Bye-bye, Ken. Ken Mansfield. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ken Mansfield. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, and thanks again to Chris Rosland, who got him for us. He also got us Jonathan Kane okay. last spring of Journey. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's two for two. Very There's good. some good stuff in that. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, our listeners may not be... As nostalgic as we are, but because uh, we lived through this, uh, but uh, here's a guy that was with them all the time and certainly um, saw many sides of them, not only the creative side, but the business side and the um, emotional side, I'm sure. And uh, it was, uh, I think he, he brings across in the book that he was uh, both a business person and someone that really had a connection and he felt that uh, that connection that he had was because these four guys were just these creative geniuses and they could make you feel, you know, so much like a part of, of what's going on um, in the hippest sense, actually. Yeah. And it all took place 50 years ago. A lot can happen in 50 mm -hmm. years. So, um, we want to thank Ken again, and we want to thank Ashley Weltner for doing what she did. Very on the good. other side, there's no, it's not the other side of the glass or anything like that. It's just, she's just on the other side of this desk. So thank you, Ashley, for being on the other side of the desk. Ashley Weltner. Ashley Weltner. She's a Weltner. I like Weltners. And then we should thank Dr. Stabon Marconi. Well, thank you very much. And also my co-host, Professor David Phillip. Feels like. How much, what's it feel like outside? Does that say minus zero? eight, and it is five degrees outside right now? I hope my horse warms up. Or we may be here all night. It's very possible. Yes. Next week we are back, and we will be uh, interviewing again Annie Leff, former manager at Hanson. He's also an agent in APA, and then after that Jordan Chalmers from Atlantic Records. So thank you very much for listening to Music Biz One Hundred and One and More on Brave New Radio eighty eight point seven on your FM dial. You're also listening possibly on Spotify, iTunes, or the Sound of Cloud. Go to musicbiz101wp.com for all things Music Biz One Hundred and One WP. So thank you for Doctor Esteban, for Ashley Veltner. I'm your professor David Kirk Phillip. At the end of every show, we do not say hello because it's silly. It's the end of the show. Instead, at the end of the show, we say howdy ho.
like she does Oh, she does Yes, she does And if somebody loved me like she do me the first time 